In 2017, eight different telescopes and telescope arrays from across the Earth all observed the same sets of targets. One place they looked was the center of the Milky Way at the supermassive black hole just 25,000 light years away in the constellation of Sagittarius. Another place we looked was the center of the galaxy M87, just 55,000 million light years away. This supermassive black hole became earlier this year, 2019, the first black hole where humanity has ever directly observed the event horizon. And this was all thanks to the technique of very long baseline interferometry in radio astronomy and the amazing team behind the Event Horizon Telescope. What did we learn? How did this happen? And where is the science of VLBI radio astronomy headed? Find out on this edition of the Starts With a Bang podcast. Twenty nineteen will go down in history as the year humanity saw directly our first black hole. This was the first time we were ever able to directly observe an event horizon that we could observe light coming from around a black hole, and yet we could see the dark spot, see the shadow of the event horizon itself. This all came about thanks to the Event Horizon Telescope, which was uniquely ambitious in being able to attempt to make this measurement for the very first time. The results are in, the event horizon is real, and I'm so pleased to welcome to the podcast PhD candidate Sarah Isaun of the Netherlands, originally from Algeria. She is an event horizon telescope scientist, a radio astronomer, and I'm so pleased to welcome her to the show. Sarah, it's a pleasure to have you here. Hello, I'm happy to be here. Wonderful, wonderful. So let's get right to it. The Event Horizon Telescope had this ambition that no one else was able to bring to fruition to directly image a black hole. What is it about the Event Horizon Telescope collaboration that enabled your team to construct an image of a black hole and to see that dark shadow in the center, to see the evidence of the event horizon where no light gets emitted, where any other attempt would have failed. The experiment is actually building on about a decade of of trials um, to try to see the event horizon of a black hole. The um, experiment started roughly around 2006, 2007, when we started combining uh, one or two different telescopes, um, first in the U.S. and then slowly expanding as the years uh, go by, adding more and more telescopes. So in order to make an image of, of the black hole in M87, we need to look at something that's about the size of, of a single hair um, of a person's eyebrow seen 40 kilometers away. That's the resolution we're trying to see with the Event Horizon Telescope. And this black hole is 55 million light years away from us. So in order to do that, we have to use uh, radio waves. Um, the great thing about radio waves is that they can go through matter and gas. And um, 
and they can look through everything between us and the black hole in M87. It looks through our galaxy, through the M87 galaxy, all the way down to the black hole. And the higher in frequency we can observe, the higher radio frequencies we're looking at, um, the more energetic the the light we're looking at. So it's coming toward uh, from the most energetic part of the of the system, which is actually the closest um, material close to the black hole, which glows so intensely that we're able to observe it at high frequency. So at higher radio frequencies, we're looking through a lot of plasma, a lot of gas, all the way down to the galaxy, to to the heart of the galaxy. And um, in order to look at these radio waves, we need to install receivers at various uh, telescopes, which is what the team has done. Uh, the receivers are, are built by uh, members of the Event Horizon Telescope Collaboration, and we go and basically borrow telescopes around the world and install them on it. And to be able to make an image, um, because the distance of the telescopes tell us about what the spatial scale we're looking at, basically telescopes further away from each other see less signal in common, so they see smaller scale structure in the image, and telescopes closer together see more signal in common, so they tell us about the large scale in the image. By combining different telescopes at different distances from each other in different orientations, we can piece together different information about scales in the image and therefore reconstruct this, this ring that we've shown to the world in April. Right, and uh, I'll make sure to publish a picture of this uh, of this uh, that your team took. I'll publish a picture of this black hole uh, along with the podcast because people, people, if you haven't seen this, you must have been living under a rock. I would rate this release in April of 2019 of the first ever image of a black hole's event horizon. For me, this is this is easily a top three discovery of the decade. This is right up there with the discovery of the Higgs boson. Uh, this is right up there with the first direct observation of gravitational waves. This is right up there with, with some of the best, most amazing, most revolutionary discoveries of the decade. Now, to make sure that we to make sure that we really understand what's going on here, I want to make sure that I get what's going on. So I want to try and explain back to you what you just explained to me. Now, when we talk about resolution, we're talking about how much space an object takes up on the sky. So, you know, you can imagine holding your your thumb at arm's length and looking at the size of your thumbnail and saying, well, how much space does that take up? And that that's about a degree. That takes up about one degree on on the sky and what you're trying to look at you said was an eyebrow hair at a distance of about 40 kilometers away yep. so we can break up degrees into 60 arc minutes is one degree and each arc minute you can break up into an arc second and so you can say 60 arc seconds is one arc minute and you can break arc seconds up into a thousand of them and say that's a milli arc second and the resolution of the Hubble Space Telescope can get you down to a few maybe around a dozen milli arc seconds but when you're talking about this event horizon of a black hole you're talking about a 6 billion solar mass black hole located some 55 million light years away now you're talking about micro arc seconds you're talking about something that's 
that's maybe just a few dozen or maybe even one dozen micro arc seconds in size. So you're talking about looking at something really, really, really of a tiny angular size. And then you're not even talking about observing this with uh, visible light, because typically the resolution of your telescope is going to be defined by the size of your telescope dish and how many frequencies or wavelengths of that light can fit across that dish. So if you're looking in radio waves, these are the longest wavelength light that's out there. And it has the advantage that you said of, you know, we, we can't really see, you know, visible light coming from these black holes all that well, because the central region of that galaxy is going to be obscured. And there's all this intervening material between this black hole and our eyes and visible light is going to be affected by that. But if you look in this long wavelength light, if you look in this radio light of a specific wavelength, you're going to be able to see it. But that means instead of needing a telescope that would be a few meters or even a few kilometers in diameter, you effectively need a telescope that's the size of approximately the diameter of Earth. Yes, that's correct. Yep. And so, and so when we talk about that, that's that's where the Event Horizon Telescope comes in, right? Because what you have is a series of radio telescopes located all over Earth. Um, now, you mentioned something about the a large number of telescopes relatively close together, which give you the large-scale features of of say this image or this object you're trying to image and a smaller number of telescopes located a larger distance away and that getting you sort of that smaller scale features can you can you talk a little bit about why that happens and how the event horizon telescope team makes that happen you mean how we combine the data between the different telescopes well, there's there's two aspects of this, right? There's the theory aspect where you can say, okay, we have a large number of telescopes in a relatively small area on the surface of Earth. And, you know, there's, there's a reason why that is really good at giving you um, the brightest features and is getting these large-scale details right. And then there's, there's another reason why, why looking at telescopes placed a very large distance apart, even if you only have a few of them, why they can give you that small-scale information, that higher-resolution information, even though, even though it might not be the brightest or strongest signal that you receive. So there's a theoretical aspect to that. And then there's also that practical aspect of that, of how does the Event Horizon Telescope accomplish this? And I was wondering if you could speak to both of those. Yes. So um, we use a concept called very long baseline interferometry to combine the observations from the different telescopes. Um, so very long baseline interferometry, we usually just say VLBI. So um, VLBI actually combines information um, arriving at different telescopes and the distances between the telescopes and their orientation give us information about spatial scales each pair of telescopes is able to see. 
So instead of looking at, you know, the, the field of view that a single telescope would see, we're really trying to look at what signal do two telescopes see in common. So of course, if you have a lot of telescopes in one place, you're able to cover a large fraction of the sky and you have, uh, they see a lot of signal in common. So you're able to get a very clear image of very nice large scale structure. But if you want to zoom in to, as you say, um, a few tens of microseconds. So we measured the M87, um, uh, ring size to be 42 microseconds. If you want to zoom in to that size, on top of observing at very high uh, radio frequency, we also need telescopes further apart to really be able to look at very tiny, small-scale features in in the in the image. So we we need telescopes that are um, a diameter of the Earth apart, but that's not enough because we want to reconstruct an image. We just we don't want to just know what signal the two telescopes see in common that are a diameter of the Earth apart. So um, in order to reconstruct an image, we really need to combine different pairs of telescopes that have different distances and different orientations with respect to each other. Um, so we actually set out to find these telescopes um, and, and basically install equipment and, and um, try to make an image. So as we increase, add more and more telescopes, our image is expected to become more and more clear and give us more and more information about different features in the image. So these um, these telescopes, on top of you know observing at this high frequency and being very far away from each other, um, because we're observing at such high frequency in radio uh, at 230 gigahertz, which is the frequency we observe with the EHT. Um, these radio waves are also attenuated by the Earth's atmosphere. So they're blocked by water vapor in the atmosphere, which means we need to have um, telescopes at very high and dry sites at some of the most extreme locations around the world. So not just any telescope will do um, that could observe at this frequency. They really have to be you know, very high up in elevation and in extremely dry environments like the uh, Atacama Desert in Chile, where our two telescopes, ALMA and OPEX, are. It's one of the driest sites on Earth. We have the South Pole Telescope in the geographic South Pole. We have telescopes in the in the uh, uh, Sierra Nevada in Spain and in um, desert in Mexico and in Arizona and Hawaii. Um, they're really, so we've actually selected them so that these are the only telescopes we could use so far to do this experiment, and we've collected them all. So, in fact, we haven't left any behind, because really, to make an image, we need every combination we could get. So it sounds like it sounds like in a dream world, in order to combat all the things you actually have to combat in order to make this observation, what you'd really rather have than the telescope array you do have is you'd love to have a single dish radio telescope in space that was the size of Earth. That if you could have that, then there would be no need for the Event Horizon Telescope because you'd have the ultimate telescope capable of measuring just a single dish radio observation of whatever source you're looking at, and you wouldn't have to worry about the atmosphere, and you wouldn't have to worry about having to perform any tricks 
um, to sort of account for the fact you have these different telescopes. But of course, that's impractical. No one is talking about building a 10,000 kilometer diameter radio telescope in space. Instead, you're using the telescopes you have to work with, which I understand are the radio telescopes and radio telescope arrays that already exist across a variety of countries and continents. And you want the ones with the best sites, which is to say the ones where the air is the driest and uh, what we call in astronomy the seeing is the best which is to say that the the effects of the atmosphere and of turbulent airflow and of molecules in the atmosphere is going to be as minimal as possible so for the frequencies you're looking at which correspond to short radio wavelengths. And when we say short radio wavelengths, we're still talking pretty long wavelength stuff. We're talking about something on the order of like centimeters, right? Um, so the wavelength at the, of the EHT is actually 1.3 millimeters. So it is, it is very small in the, in the radio side. It's not quite, it's not quite the infrared, but, um, close. Yeah, it's what it's what someone like me who uh, spent too much time studying the CMB results might might call microwave radiation. Although it is it is officially in the radio part of the spectrum, isn't it? Yes. Yeah. So there will be a, an expansion of the EHT where we will go to the microwave regime in the future. Well, that'll be that'll be exciting for certain. Um. So let's let's come back to this now. So what we do instead of building this thing in space is we say, okay, here on Earth, what we're going to do is we're going to observe this object from as many different locations as we can. So this is like taking our ideal telescope the size of Earth. And what we're doing is we're just blocking out portions of it. We're just obscuring the parts where we don't have actual telescopes and observatories designed to collect this data. But what you wind up with is this patchwork telescope of seven or eight different sites, some of which have single-dish radio telescopes on them, and some of which have arrays that contain, you know, up to dozens or even hundreds of radio telescopes. And the big one that you mentioned in the Atacama Desert is ALMA. And having a telescope like ALMA to start with, I feel like that's really the array that made the Event Horizon Telescope possible. Can you tell us why that might be? So ALMA is, is of course, the the state-of-the-art facility now for for high-frequency radio observations. And it's, it's an incredibly powerful facility. It has about 50 to 60 individual antennas. And when you synthesize them together, which is what we did for the EHT, um, was to combine all the antennas together to form one mega dish um, that was about 70 meters um diameter. So by combining all the dishes together into one mega dish, we actually created the most sensitive telescope of the EHT um, in Chile. The um, nice thing about, about the ALMA location also in Chile is that it's very central to the, to the array. 
So it can observe with many different stations um, with Europe and with Hawaii and the South Pole and the northern um, Mexico and U.S. stations uh, all the time. And it's incredibly sensitive. So we um, it has been really valuable for the uh, calibration and the uh, analysis of the data to have ALMA part of the array. Right. And then you mentioned something uh, about it being located in Chile. Uh, this is relatively close to the equator, isn't it? Which means it can see, uh, you know, at least for 12 hours a day, it can see almost the entire sky. So if something's in the northern hemisphere or the southern hemisphere, uh, the uh, the ALMA telescope array is still going to be able to see it. This is very different than a telescope that's located, like you mentioned earlier, at, for example, the South Pole, which can only see something if it's in the southern celestial hemisphere. It won't be able to see your objects in the north, right? Yes, exactly. And, and the two main um, black holes we're trying to observe with the Event Horizon Telescope um, so M87, the one we've revealed in April, is in the northern hemisphere, but, and Sagittarius A star is actually, you know, um, further south. And um, the South Pole Telescope can see Sagittarius A star, but not M87. And ALMA, because of its prime location, can see both of them for a very long time. So it's very um, useful for us to have long observations with ALMA for these two black holes we're trying to image and have the rest of the array come together around it. Right. Now when you're when you're using your telescope like this, when you're using an array of telescopes, it isn't enough to just say, okay, we're taking observations of and I'll use Sagittarius A star because all of the telescopes that we're using can see that one. Whereas uh, to see the one in M87, all of the telescopes except the one at the South Pole can see that one. Um, so you can say, okay, well, we've got a telescope in South Africa, and that can view this. So let's observe and let's take data. And we've got a telescope in Chile, and that can observe it. So let's do it and let's take data. And we've got one in North America, and we've got one in Europe, and we've got one in Australia, and we stitch these all together. And we and we make this image. It isn't enough, though, to just say, well, we observed with this telescope and we also observed with that telescope yeah. and we're going to combine these image. You need to observe this object at the same exact time with all the telescopes. This is something that's both complicated to do technically but also is essential to do from a theoretical point of view. Can you can you tell us why you have to do it simultaneously? And then can you tell us how the Event Horizon Telescope accommodates this difficulty by having these disconnected observatories located in some cases uh, up to 10,000 kilometers or more apart from one another, how you bring those observations together? Yes. So, um, because the Event Horizon Telescope is a computational telescope, um, we don't actually have a telescope the size of the Earth. We have small telescopes separated by large distances. So we use this concept called uh, VLBI, Very Long Baseline Interferometry, to synthesize a virtual telescope um, from this network. So when we have a distance source that is far away from us, the waves we receive 
on Earth are plane waves. They're flat. But because of the Earth's geometry, so the Earth is, is uh, round, um, and the distances between the different telescopes, there is a difference in the arrival time of the waves at each telescope. And by precisely synchronizing the telescopes with atomic clocks or masers, and these, these clocks are, are so precise that they lose one second every hundred million years. That's how accurate they are. And all of these clocks are synchronized to the same GPS signal. And then the arrival time of the signal at each telescope is known and time tagged um, using this clock and recorded onto hard drives. So we basically freeze the light that arrives at each telescope with a precise timestamp from an atomic clock and record it onto hard drives that we then ship and combine at a later time where we unfreeze the light and basically play back the movie that that um, just unfolded um, before the telescopes. One of the reasons I find this remarkable is because one of the lessons we learn from Einstein's relativity is that different observers will not agree on what is simultaneous. And so you have to pick a particular reference frame in order to get observations that you can truly say are simultaneous. You have to pick a reference frame and then say these observations are simultaneous in that reference frame. And it sounds like you've chosen one. What you've chosen is from the reference frame of a light wave emitted from the black hole itself. When will those light waves arrive at these different points on Earth? And when the same light wave strikes the surface of the Earth at all of those different locations that were emitted from that black hole, that's what you define as simultaneous. And using your atomic clock and using that wavefront from when it should arrive, that's how you define, okay, these observations are all simultaneous, and this is the data we need to use when we construct our image. Is that correct? Yes, exactly. So we need to basically um, perfectly timestamp when these waves arrive at different telescopes. They will arrive at different times, but they all originated at the same time from the black hole. So that's what we're trying to reconstruct. That's great. And now I'm sorry for interrupting earlier, but would you continue with how you do this? Yes. Yeah, so so these atomic clocks, um, we basically procure them and uh, ship them to all telescopes. So every telescope has its own atomic clock. And um, we basically also have um, our custom EHT recording equipment um, that is uh, customized by members of the Event Horizon Telescope. And the signal from these telescopes is then sampled and recorded onto um, stacked hard drives, onto uh, what we call modules of hard drives. In our 2017 campaign, we used 92 modules, or about 736 hard drives. So a total of about four petabytes of data we recorded during 2017 observations. And um, what's tricky about this, because we, we have telescopes in such remote um, locations, we can't um, transfer the data over internet. It would actually take us about 40 years to get the data back from the South Pole Telescope. So um, so we actually just get these, um, put the data onto these hard drives and then ship them um, by airplane 
to um, central um, computational facilities where the data are then combined, where this kind of movie of the black hole light can be replayed. And um, you know, our um, EHT project director always says that you cannot beat the bandwidth of a 747 uh, filled with hard drives. So that's kind of what we're shooting for. Right. And and someday, I hope that's not true. Someday, I hope that we can beat uh, a 747 because right now, with a telescope array like the Event Horizon Telescope, what you've done in your team has done is absolutely brilliant because you're saying, hey, we don't have the funds or the infrastructure to build a giant telescope array the size of Earth. But there are telescope arrays that already exist, telescopes and telescope arrays that already exist that are suitable for being a part of the EHT. So what we've done is we've installed hardware and software onto these observatories with with their permission, of course, that enables us to sync up these observations, that enables us to effectively use these dishes as one giant radio telescope together. And then we collect all the data that's recorded from them and we combine it. We stitch them together at these critical moments. Right now, you're limited to locations that you can physically transport hard drives from because of the enormous amount of data that you collect. In fact, I, I was led to understand that um, the April data that was all brought together um, for constructing these images totaled about 27 petabytes of data, which is approximately as much data as every book ever written, digitized, images included, um, that that's about as much data as the Event Horizon Telescope took during this one run. And about five petabytes of that data was actually used in constructing those first images of the black hole at the center of M87. Yeah, so we record a large amount of data, but actually because, um, because we record at each different telescope, our data is actually mostly dominated by noise. The signal actually from the black hole is a really tiny part of that. So, you know, recording the data as challenging as it is to, you know, install equipment and go to these sites and perform, you know, highly coordinated observations between these different telescopes, um, getting the data, combining it and analyzing it and processing it is, is uh, still a large part of the work that still remains to be done. And so because the signal is so small, um, when we combine the data uh, from the different telescopes, because each telescope has different noise, we can basically um, only look at what we call the correlated signal. So this is a process we call correlation, where we look at the correlated signal, so the signal in common between the different telescopes. So out of all these petabytes of data, most of it is noise, and only a few terabytes basically re uh, remain after this correlation process, after we strip down the noise and get the signal. Now, the signal we get at that point is, again, still not perfect. So I, I told you before that we are highly susceptible to the atmosphere of the Earth. So on top of us um, being um, sensitive to water vapor, uh, the waves we that arrive at the telescopes also get attenuated by by the water vapor and also get um, disturbed and scrambled by turbulence in the atmosphere. 
And the correlation step cannot take into account the turbulence in the atmosphere. So there's a very important step called calibration um, that is done, which then tries to model um, instrumental effects, so effects at the different sites and of the atmospheric turbulence, and correct those and remove these effects to get nice and clean data. So at the calibration step, we're left with megabytes of data that are um, that are now fully calibrated. These are the data that are then taken and processed by imaging softwares to make a kilobyte size image that you can then send over, you know, on your phone, which is quite amazing because from the petabyte raw signals we get from the uh, telescopes to a kilobyte image, we go through 12 orders of magnitude in data reduction in this whole chain of EHD data processing. I mean, that's that's so crazy when we have an expression where we talk about looking for a needle in a haystack where you you imagine that you have this awesomely large amount of of hay or, you know, of, of data, as it were, and you're looking for that needle and you're looking for that one little bit of signal to pull out against all that background noise. And yet what you're talking about is not the difference between a needle and a haystack. You're talking about 12 orders of magnitude. You're talking about you're talking about getting one in a trillion. It's a big haystack. This is like this is like looking inside a human being for maybe a cluster of 100 red blood cells that are are forming that first microclot that is going to keep your your internal body from bruising. You are you are looking at something so tiny amidst this enormous sea. It makes me it makes me want to go in a direction that we haven't talked about and that we haven't planned for. If you had come to me uh, 20 years ago and asked me what the different types of astronomers were, I would have told you that there were three. I would have told you that there were the theorists, like like what I was aspiring to be at the time, where, you know, okay, we're the people who look at what is the reason behind why the objects out there behave the way they do. What's the physics driving them? What can we predict? What ought we to see? And what can we tell observers to go and look for? And I would say you have the observers who go out and take the observations, who make the observing runs, who use the telescopes. And then you have the instrumentationalists. You have the instrument builders, the people who build the telescopes and the instruments that go on the telescopes. Now, here in 2019, there is a fourth type of astronomer out there, a type of astronomer that doesn't work with theory and doesn't work with ob observers and doesn't work with instrumentationalists. These are people who just do data analysis that I would say working with analyzing the data in astronomy is now its own separate subfield of astronomy. And I think a project like this really highlights how important that aspect of astronomy, that aspect of modern astronomy is for achieving results like we just achieved with the Event Horizon Telescope. Yes, definitely. The data analysis aspect is, is incredibly tricky um, for these types of observations. I think a lot of experiments with you know, an enormous amount of data really looking at a small aspect um, are dealing with, with similar things. I think this is the era of big data science. So it's, it's really great to see this, this fourth category of astronomers growing. 
Yeah, I would say um, of your collaboration, of the Event Horizon Telescope collaboration, I I would be willing to bet that you have more scientists working on the data analysis of this of this telescope than you do on any other aspect. That sounds about right. I think because there are so many different aspects of data analysis. I think we've only discussed you no. Know, um, a couple of different aspects in, in uh, our latest results, which already take a few different teams of people. And also, you know, because we really want to be absolutely sure about our results, because you know, this is very, um, very high profile result to show the, the first image of a black hole. So we had a lot of parallelization um, all the way from from correlation to um, calibration, imaging, uh, theoretical simulations, um, modeling, um, uh, lots of different types of analysis. We had you know, different pipelines, different techniques, different software used. So lots of different ideas and people coming together, thinking about how to do things in different ways that would then confirm that, that we're actually looking at, at the true signal and the true uh, properties of the black hole and not some effect of, of the software or the methods we're using. Yeah, and I think I think that's actually really fascinating because one of the aspects of working in a large collaboration like the Event Horizon Telescope collaboration is that the work that you do as an individual is essential for the team getting the right answer or getting a, a reliable answer in the end, but that this is really the result of hundreds of individuals doing exactly that, doing their job properly. And only when you bring all of this work together can you actually see that final image. Can you see what it looks like, as you said, when you reduce petabytes of the initial data to an a final image that's only kilobytes in size. Yes, exactly. And just like our Event Horizon Telescope Array, where we have to combine you know, different telescopes doing part of their job into one bigger um, synthesized telescope, the EHT collaboration works in very much the same way. We have many people working on different aspects from instrumentation to theoretical interpretation, uh, data analysis, calibration, processing, um, and and everybody brings in their piece of the puzzle, and then we can slowly put together the story that that we've shared um, with the world in April ten. Right, and and when you say you shared this story with the world uh, from April tenth, I mean April tenth was uh, April tenth was when the data release happened. But if I go back to twenty seventeen and I take a look at the image that is released from there, it's not just one image of Messier 87 star or of the black hole at the center of M87 that you released, it's actually four. And if I yeah. look at the first two images, I can see that they're taken a day apart and I can see that they're extremely similar to one another. The features about where it's bright and where it's dark and where it's faint and where it's dim and where it's where it's not, those look very similar between those first two images. And then there's another pair of images that are also a day apart, but they're separated from that first pair 
by about five days. And when I look at that second pair, again, I see the same thing, that these two images, they have the same bright spots and the same dark spots and the same overall pattern. But when I look at that first set of two images and that second set of two images, I start to notice that they're different from one another. And there's a very good reason for this that has nothing to do with the telescope itself, but everything to do with the black hole. Do you want to tell me about that? Yes. So the the black hole in M87 is six and a half billion solar masses. So the material around the black hole um, moves pretty slow because the black hole is so massive. And because of that, its dynamical timescale is usually of order a few, um, about 10 hours. And so in, to see actually gas moving significantly around the black hole, you'd have to wait a few days um, to really see significant changes in an image, for example, or in the data. And that's exactly what we see here. So the two first days, um, April 5 and April 6, 2017, look very similar to each other. And then we had a gap where we uh, didn't observe M87 and then observed it again on April 10 and April 11, where the images still look incredibly similar, but with some slight differences. And that's because um, there are some dynamical changes around the black hole that have occurred in the span of a few days. Now, um, we're, we're still not sure exactly what, what is the uh, specific change in, in, um, in the image or in the data that, that creates this different image um, um, and we're going to need a lot more observations of the black hole over um, longer periods, um, so more days, and maybe interspersed more regularly so that we could really maybe someday um, sort of make a dynamical image or a movie of, of this gas moving around the black hole. I think that's really fascinating because... This is one of the largest black holes that we have, or that we have certainly within our nearby uh, backyard. And yet when we go ahead and we look at a smaller black hole, like for example, the one at the center of our own galaxy, uh, this exhibits extremely different behavior. The one at the center of our own galaxy, instead of being six and a half billion solar masses, uh, we've measured it to be only around four million solar masses. And when you talk about that difference, that factor of 1500 or so, that means that it should be variable on timescales that are 1500 times faster because the light yeah. travel time across it is that much faster. So whereas we might look at a black hole like M87 and say, oh, it varies on timescales of about a day, we can look at the black hole at the center of our own galaxy and say, you know what? This isn't going to vary on timescales of a day. This is going to vary on timescales of like a minute. Yes. And that makes things a lot more challenging as far as reconstructing a single image that actually brings out all of that detail. Is that the primary reason why, even though the black hole at the center of our galaxy should be a little bit bigger in terms of angular size than the one in M87, is that why we've seen the one from M87 already and why the EHT team hasn't released the final data from Sagittarius A star yet? Yes. 
So um, in our 2017 observing campaign, we observed both Sagittarius A star and M87. However, when we started processing and analyzing the data, because M87 is such a large black hole and it varies so slowly, it was very easy for us to obtain an image. And um, we decided to focus uh, the entire collaboration on the M87 science and release that to the world before diving back into Star. So I always use this analogy that you know, M87 is basically like trying to take a long exposure of an adult waiting to have his portraits taken. And taking a picture of Star is like taking a long exposure of a running toddler. So that kind of gives the perspective of what what is the challenge we're we're dealing with here? So in, in order to make an image of a of a running toddler, obviously you cannot do a long exposure. You have to do a movie. So we're really in the process of exploring different techniques um, to reconstruct movies of a of a variable source like Saturday Star, and hopefully um, obtain obtain something that that um, would show people how the black hole looks. I think it will be very tricky until we get such a clear image like M87 because it's so variable. But um, hopefully we'll have something to show soon. I, I'm optimistic for that too. But whether you do or whether you don't, I think it's wonderful to also look ahead to the future. Because right now, the telescope arrays we have are limited to being on Earth. We don't have giant radio telescopes in space. If we did, that would certainly be a tremendous boon to us. We wouldn't have to contend with the atmosphere, for one, so we wouldn't have all that water vapor in the atmosphere to worry about. We wouldn't have the turbulence to worry about. We wouldn't have the attenuation to worry about. But in addition, we also wouldn't be bound by the diameter of Earth for taking these observations. If we could make these, you know, I'll say the locations of the dishes, if we could spread them out over space by an even larger amount, and we could again compute, okay, from the perspective of these black holes, when they emit light and the wave fronts come in, we're trying to synchronize when they actually hit our telescopes versus when they arrive at all the different telescopes, and that's how we sync them up. With that in mind, do you see a future for the Event Horizon Telescope where we increase its resolution by increasing the baseline size by going to space? Can you see this leading to a future where we're not just looking at two black holes, but possibly hundreds of them? And can you see the main barrier to this being only the data rates, that when it doesn't take 40 years to transfer the data from one of these telescopes, but rather only a few weeks, will we be able to actually do space-based VLBI? So that's a great question. And it's a it's actually a new field that, that recently opened up and lots of people are asking these questions also. Uh, space field BI is definitely something the EHT is thinking about in the future. So there are a couple of different scenarios we've thought about. For example, having a single uh, satellite in space uh, linked together with the ground array. So in this way, we would have the coverage uh, or, or virtual telescope we can get from the telescopes on Earth. And then we add another telescope up above the atmosphere that zips around the Earth very quickly and basically fills up our virtual mirror. And that way we would get 
basically um, more coverage to to take very quick snapshots and make therefore clearer movies um, with with just a single uh, satellite zipping around very quickly around the Earth. So it can make you know the ISS does a full orbit in about ninety minutes. So in the process of an observation for us, which is um, eight to twelve hours we would be able to cover up a lot more um, surface of a virtual telescope. And that would be that would be incredibly useful for something like M87 star, right? Where where the black hole doesn't change very much on those time scales that that orbiting takes place over. Is that correct? So also for Saturday star, it would make a significant uh, improvement um, compared to the snapshots we can get just from our ground arrays. But because um, we have only one satellite linked with the ground, we're still limited by the observing frequency we can we can reach on the ground. Uh, so the second uh, idea we have is to have you know sev- uh, two or more telescopes um, completely as satellites outside of the Earth's atmosphere, either in low Earth or um, um, mid Earth uh, orbits around around the earth and um have them be at uh, slightly different separations so slightly different distances from the earth because of the drift of the satellites their distances will change over time um so what's neat is that you know these telescopes are not linked to the ground anymore so they can go at higher frequency and uh look through you know more material and really look at the sharpest bounds of the black hole shadow and make very sharp images. But because you know, these are very large distances away from the Earth, they orbit much slower. So those are good to make you know, very sharp images over time. So integrating over a large amount of time, making sharper and sharper images. So you can make sharp images over six months or 12 months, etc. Just having satellites orbiting um, and having their separations slightly differ over time. You no, know, it's really exciting to have these these projects, um, but there are some challenges with space VLBI that um, that limit. You know why we haven't done that yet. You mentioned the data rate. That's that's something we're struggling with. You know, as you know, for the EHT, we have to um, you know ship hard drives from different stations, and it's very hard to ship hard drives from space. And then the second um, trick we have to um, to to overcome is that if we go to higher and higher frequency, um, the the localization of our stations has to be more and more precise. So um, on Earth, because we observe at um, 230 gigahertz, we need to know the locations of our stations um, at roughly the meter um, precision. If we go to space, um, uh, we we, and we go to higher frequencies, say 690 gigahertz, 1 terahertz, we need to know their positions at the 1 millimeter precision, which is incredibly precise, and no, there there's no localization system that is able to do that yet. So that's another challenge. Right. Even even at astronomical distances, right, the best way we have of, uh, of measuring, for example, the distance to the moon is through a lunar laser ranging experiment, 
which, you know, we really weren't able to do until the 1960s when we started landing things on the moon and installing corner mirror reflectors. And even at that, I believe we only collect about one out of every 10 to the 17 photons that we shoot at the moon. So if we're trying to measure the distance to a spacecraft with that with an even better level of precision, we we certainly have our work cut out for us, don't we? Yes, so we need to know the position of the satellites precisely, and then we have to timestamp also the signal the same way we do on Earth, uh, the signal that arrives at these uh, at these satellites. Now expanding to lower Earth orbit, um, which is still um, you know, pretty far, and we can really increase the resolution of the of the ray um, in that way. I think we would be only be able to see the shadow of maybe one or two more black holes. One of uh, of the targets we're looking at is the black hole in M M one o four, the Sombrero Galaxy, which has a black hole that is um, fairly massive and not so far from us that we'd be able to see it if we go to space. Um, obviously, M eighty seven and Sagittarius star, it's not super useful for us to increase the resolution because we already know roughly the size of the shadow we expect, and we can already reach that on Earth. So um, the the best thing we can think of is, is either, you know, in, uh, how do we make the experiment better for uh, either long exposure with these two satellites orbiting um, or, or um, very quick snapshots with just one satellite and the rest of the array on the ground. Um, and then if we want to go even further, say, you know, put satellites near the moon and, and so on, then we can really um, start branching out to other black holes and we maybe be able to catch a couple more. But the scale at which we need satellites is probably um, has to be pretty enormous for us to really see, you know, hundreds of black hole shadows. Right. So you'd, you'd really be looking at orbits that were, you know, that would be very elliptical orbits or something that would take you a substantial fraction of the distance to the moon. You'd be, you'd be looking at an orbit to do that that was at least many Earth diameters. Um, because higher resolution means you need a longer baseline and there's only so much of an advantage you can get by going to shorter wavelengths before the practicalities of going to shorter wavelengths limit you. Yes, exactly. And I think there's a lot of technical challenges that come with space VLBI, but that doesn't stop us from thinking about it and, and coming up with concepts. I mean, about you know, 10, 20 years ago, a project like the EHT wouldn't have been possible, but the technical um advances caught up with us and and made the project doable so who knows what people will come up with right and that's that's part of something that i think maybe maybe we haven't emphasized enough this podcast um when the Event Horizon Telescope was first really conceived a little over a decade ago you talked about the early days 06 07 people didn't know how you know, 10 years later, 2017, 2018, 2019, in this era, they didn't know how advances were going to occur. They didn't know that these observations would be possible and that these data techniques would be available. They just had a vision that this is something that should be possible and we need to start working on how do we make that happen now. 
right now you're looking to the next generation of things. You're looking to how can we go to higher frequencies and shorter wavelengths and get better resolutions? How can we increase the baseline distance of these telescopes? Could we do something like a modified version of the Spectar spacecraft that is currently a, you know, I'll say a, a medium Earth orbit radio observatory now? Um, the extensions you're looking at right now, they're just in the ideation stage. They're, they're just in the we'd like to do this right now stage. But that doesn't mean we shouldn't be exploring them because today's explorative technologies are – some of them are going to be tomorrow's technologies that takes us to the next step in radio astronomy. In fact, it might not even be solely black holes and event horizons that an ultralong baseline telescope or virtual telescope like this would be good for. Yes, I think – I think the the observing frequency is a is a, a limiting factor about what exactly we can see. So of course, um, you know, as you go in higher frequency, you're really looking at um, incredibly powerful engines that could really power uh, radiation to be um, to be that energetic to to emit at such high um, high radio wave frequency. So really, black holes is all we got. Um, but there are other black holes, not just supermassive ones. There are black holes in what we call X-ray binaries, so black holes that are that are eating up a, a nearby star uh, in a binary system that do explode and and have jets once in a while. That are would be really interesting if we had the resolution to see that. Those would be incredibly exciting to to look at. Really understand, you know. Uh, are, are stellar mass black holes or supermassive black holes actually scalable? Do they behave the same way? Um, lots of really interesting questions about, you know, how how black holes behave and how they feed and eject, you know, these enormous jets of plasma that pierce through entire galaxies. In the case of supermassive black holes, you know, where they come from, how do they do that? These are all an uh, questions we're still asking today, and and hopefully. You know, with the Event Horizon Telescope, we're trying to answer some of them, and and we're pushing uh, technological boundaries to see more, um, more of these types of of black holes and X-ray binaries, and and the gravitational wave work helps us learn more about what kind of black hole um, um, types are are around us. It's a pretty exciting time to be to be looking at black holes. Yeah, in fact, that brings me to maybe the last question that I want to ask. One of the wonderful things that, again, obviously one of the top discoveries of the last decade has been the first direct observation of gravitational waves coming from black hole-black hole mergers. Now, as we look to the future and the 2030s, uh, they're going to build and fly LISA, which is the Laser Interferometer Space Antenna. This will look for gravitational waves of the type that LIGO is not sensitive to. It will look to longer wavelength gravitational waves from supermassive black holes that swallow black holes, neutron stars, even regular stars, that we'll be able to see these longer period um, waves. Now, when I think about the black holes that are out there that might be measurable 
by a future advanced, more advanced version of the EHT? Like, what would the future of VLBI radio astronomy hold for black holes? I, I do. I think about the black holes at the centers of Milky Way-like galaxies and Sombrero-like galaxies and M87-like galaxies, but I also start thinking of intermediate mass black holes of the kind that are expected to be near the galactic center of Sagittarius A star and other similar galaxies, of the kind that might be at the centers of globular clusters. And I think about the supermassive black holes that are ultra-distant, that are either part of active galactic nuclei or quasars or um, that we see in the Chandra Deep Field South image where we see hundreds of these brilliant bright X-ray sources that could only be coming from the supermassive black holes at the centers of galaxies. And I start thinking, wow, is multi-messenger astronomy for supermassive black holes or intermediate mass black holes, is that possibly on the horizon of a future EHT extension? Yes, I think it's a very exciting future ahead with all these different you know, next generation facilities that are coming up that are able to do multi-messenger astronomy and, and look at you know, different types of, of um, radiation all across the the electromagnetic spectrum and really trying to understand the core physics around around these extreme objects. So the EHT, in, in fact, has a multi-wavelength campaign. We don't just observe by ourselves every year. On top of coordinating different stations, we also coordinate with various observatories um, that observe at different wavelengths. For example, we have coordinated observations with New Star and Chandra um, X-ray satellites, and we have coordinated observations with other lower frequency radio arrays like the VLBA or the KVN in Korea. Um, we have uh, infrared observations from the VLT. And um, next year, we're hoping that we'll collaborate also with the gravity experiment um, at, in the, um, at the VLTI, which will, again, uh, help us look more closely at Sagittarius A star and the infrared and then the radio. Um, so, so we do have multi-messenger astronomy already with the EHT. Um, we haven't yet spent time on, on, you know, stitching the story together, but absolutely. I think in order to really understand these, these amazing, uh, objects, I think, you know, seeing the shadow of a black hole is, is a great feat, but, um, it, it does answer some questions, but it, it, we ask a lot more than, than we can answer. And we really need to piece together the puzzle across the entire spectrum and really take everything we can get from, from lots of different observatories and experiments that can look at this at the same time. You know, and and maybe that's something that we should all remember. You know, you're you're a young astronomer at the beginning of what promises to be as long and fruitful a career as you care to make it. I'm really curious. Um, what are the big questions that you are looking forward to seeing the answers to? That you're looking forward to seeing us uncover the answers to in our lifetimes. So I think the case of intermediate mass black holes is a very interesting one that we haven't really um, detected them or seen them. Um, and I think the the relationship between 
Um, so the scalable relationship between supermassive black holes and black holes and X-ray binaries, I think they're still something where it feels like we're close to unraveling, but we're not there yet. And and with all these um, facilities coming up, multi-messenger astronomy, we can really try to understand them um, in a in a more um, sort of in a simultaneous way across the spectrum, and really understand and compare these different um, mechanisms that you know um, bring matter onto black holes and eject uh, plasma, and and really trying to compare what makes a supermassive black hole be the way it is, and what makes an extra binary black hole be the way it is. And these are all you know very exciting questions we're still trying to answer. And supermassive black holes have are still you know shrouded in mystery, and it's quite amazing that there are so many of them. You know they're at the centers of so many you know um, mature galaxies, but we still don't know you know why why do they have this symbiotic relationship with galaxies? What links you know um, our galaxy to our supermassive black hole? We still don't really understand. Um, why they're there and how they come to be there and how they come to be so massive. M87 is six and a half billion solar masses and it's so close to us. It's not even, um, you know, it's not a, 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 it's not a very far away kind of ancient beast. It, it's really an enormous black hole very close to us and we have no idea how it came to be so massive. Don't understand how these black holes can, can gain so much mass in, in just a few billion years. Lots of exciting questions that we can we can look forward to. It sounds like the big thing you're looking forward to is understanding how these massive, enormous, exotic objects, the black holes that we have in the universe, not just the stellar mass ones, but the intermediate mass ones, the supermassive ones, and the ultra supermassive ones that are many billions of solar masses, you're looking for an understanding of how they work, how they grow, what their dynamics are in realistic astrophysical environments, and how they grew up to be the way they are. And you're saying that the Event Horizon Telescope, and in particular, the technique of VLBI as applied to radio astronomy, that's going to be one of the guiding forces in in uncovering the answers to these big questions and possibly in revealing what are the next big questions we should be asking if we want to understand this better. Yes, absolutely. I think the Event Horizon Telescope, because of its um, resolution, we can really dive down deep in the centers of these, of these galaxies as close as we can to the black holes. And in the case of M87, you know, right down to its edge and really try to understand the physics, um, so near in this extreme gravity environment and link it to, um, what everybody else is seeing along the electromagnetic spectrum and on various, uh, spatial scales, really trying to understand the relationship between this, this uh, you no know, enormous beast of a black hole, the gas around it, this jet it emits, and the, the galaxy that it's at the center of. And very interesting um, time to be to be doing the LBI and also to be part of this uh, multi messenger astronomy community. And you know, just like the the um, network itself and the collaboration, you know, every piece counts. So we're really trying to um, you know have a collaborative environment to try and understand um, what everybody has to bring to this mystery.
Sarah, I want to thank you so much for being a part of this podcast. Are there any final thoughts you would like to leave our listeners with as they ponder the Event Horizon Telescope, the future of VLBI radio astronomy, and the first but certainly not the last direct image of a black hole's event horizon that we've ever seen? So I'll just leave you with maybe a sneak peek about what's next for the Event Horizon Telescope collaboration. So we have New observations coming up in 2020, we're going back to look at Sagittarius A star in M87. And in the meantime, we still have lots of data left from 2017. We've only looked at total intensity images of M87, but we also have polarization information from our telescopes that could actually tell us about the magnetic fields around the black hole. M87 has a famous jet of plasma that pierces through the entire galaxy. We're really trying to understand where these jets come from hopefully magnetic fields and their behavior around this extreme environment of a black hole um, will tell us more information about this mystery. So that's the next step for the EHD collaboration. And before I let you go, do you think you'll be able to tell whether these magnetic fields, if you can measure them and the polarization data is good and they are related to the jets themselves, which we fully expect them to be, Will you be able to tell whether, as we expect, these magnetic fields are generated by the matter outside of the event horizon of the black hole itself, or whether, as we don't expect, the black holes themselves are responsible for generating their own magnetic fields? I think that's a really exciting question and something our theory um, members are working really hard on. So we're trying to test you know, different uh, types of, of models of, of generating these magnetic fields and comparing them to observations, just like we did with the image of the uh, black hole shadow, where we compared them to different images produced by different types of simulations. We're doing the same thing with the magnetic fields and polarization to really try to pin down the mechanism uh, that launches these uh, these jets. So hopefully we'll be able, maybe not um, fully clear answer just yet, um, but with more studies, we'll be able to, to give some, some more information about this process. Sarah Asoun, PhD candidate in radio astronomy at the Netherlands and Event Horizon Telescope collaboration member, thank you so much for joining us, for telling us about the interplay of theory, observation, instrumentation, and data analysis, and how they led to one of the greatest achievements of this decade in astronomy. Thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. Yeah, and I look forward to hearing what's next from the EHT collaboration. I want to thank everyone listening for making the Starts With a Bang podcast possible. This is really only made possible thanks to the generous donations of our Patreon supporters. And I'd like to thank everyone donating at the $5 a month level and above. Thanks go to Chad Marler, Cliff Elgin, Rob Hansen, Samir Kumar, Aaron Weiss, Paulina Barron, Stefan Bernegger, John Van Balaguyan, Dominic Turpin, Tim Graham, John Methot, Pavel Zuzelski, Thomas Sola, 
Denier, Frank, Eric Brown, Pedro Texera, Igor Mitrofanov, Joseph Dvorak, Jeffrey David Maracini, Juan Jose Gomez Garcia, Punitive Expedition, Patrick Dennis, Jens Kroger, Laird WH, Mark Armstrong, Jose Enrique, Sean Foley, Flo, Richard Jousey, DGE, John Kozura, Marcelo Barnaba, Danny, Alexander Marius, Andrew T. Douglas, Chris Hilly, Jason McCampbell, Weller Tractor Salvage, Chris Jakutas, Adrian Griffiths, William Blair, Jason Luttrell, Brainwise, Ken Blackman, Pierre Franzen, Dick Pills, Hannah Kahn, Andrew Jason, Mark Langston, David Krumpotic, Randall Slimak, Jerry Wilterding, Tom Van Scotter, Michael Lewis, Mike, Ahmed Lee Comsey, Dana Bridges, Kelly Kudrick, Richard Schwartz, Darren Redfern, Mark Bloor, Fraser Kane, Steve Schaber, Naked Bunny with a Whip, Kevin Barnes, Radek Nesbitta, James Nance, Sidney Atwood, Nathan Hanna, Tomas All, Glenn McDavid, Benjamin Turner, David Taschioni, Philip Radilovic, and Braxton Thomason. Thanks for tuning in, everyone, and we'll see you back here next time for more Starts With a Bang. (laughs) 